There's a story told about a man who was a multimillionaire and an avid collector of expensive and rare works of art. He read about a particular painting, determined that he would have it for his collection regardless of the expense. He sent agents out all over the world to find the painting. The search cost thousands of dollars and lasted several months. When his agents came back, they reported that they had indeed found the painting. And it was in one of his many warehouses because he already owned it. He was searching for something that he already possessed. This, in a lot of ways, it sounds like many believers today. We're always looking for the next great thing. The next great feeling. The next great experience. We're looking for something that we don't yet have some sort of spiritual fulfillment or contentment, and we wear ourselves out searching for this more. All the while, Scripture says we have everything we need, and it's already ours in Christ. The problem isn't that we don't have enough. The problem is we don't know enough. We don't know our God well enough, and so we don't know who we are in Christ well enough. And so we look for things that we already possess. Scripture teaches us how we go about overcoming this. Open your Bible to Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 23. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, that filleth all in all. The title of the message this morning is that you may know. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we come this morning with a desire to know. To know You better. To know better who we are in Christ. To know what is our inheritance. Father, what is that You have given us? So that we can stop searching and stop looking. And we can just experience all that is meant to be ours in Christ. Heavenly Father, in this little time that we have remaining, guide us to surrender it fully to You. And Lord, let Your Holy Spirit come and give us ears that would hear all that You have for us today. Let Him come and and make our hearts Prepare that the seed of your word would sink deep into our hearts and bring forth good fruit that brings you great glory. Pour out your spirit upon me that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. 
And I would have clarity of thought and clarity of speech and would not be in any way a hindrance to what you once said, what you want done. Heavenly Father, today above all else, we need to know you. Today, if we do not know you, stir within us a desire, a longing to know you. And if we do know you, Father, stir within us today a desire to know you better. There is always more to know of who you are. There is always more to know of what you can do. There is always more of your goodness and more of your grace and more of your power for us to experience. Today, stir within us a longing for the more that comes from you. Help us, Father, never to be satisfied by scratching the surface. Never to be satisfied by having a shallow knowledge of you, God. But let us go deeper and deeper into the glory of our God. To His power, His grace, and His goodness. Have Your way in our hearts and our lives today. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 15 and 16, Paul praises the congregation for their genuine faith in Jesus. Their faith was seen in their genuine love for the saints. He praises them and then he mentions that he prays for them. He doesn't pray in a general way. He prays a very specific way. And there is really one main prayer that he prays and then others that flow out of that. The one main prayer is that they would know God better. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know. Right? His, whole, his prayer was for the Holy Spirit. To be to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. So that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. And they would then know all of the hope that was theirs. All of the riches that they were. And all of the power of God that was available in their lives. The wording and the structure of this prayer. It gives the impression that God wants, that Paul wants them to know these things. Not merely intellectually, but experientially. Right? He wants them to not just know that there's more of God, but to truly know God better. And He wants them to know God better so that they can not just know that there is a great hope laid up for them, but they can experience the great hope that God has for them. He wants them to know and experience these truths in their life. Paul knows that there is a difference between saying, yes, I know that's true, and experiencing that truth in our lives. And so the main thought, because it all relates around knowing God, when we know God better, then we begin to know these other things as well. So the better I know God, the better I know my identity as a child of God. Those two aspects truly, I believe, make up the greatest need in the church today. To know our God better and then to know who we are as His children. These two things are, are true that we need to know them if we are spiritually healthy in our lives and if we are spiritually struggling in our lives. This is true in churches that are healthy and thriving and churches that are struggling and dying. We should long to know and experience God in greater and more 
more complete ways than we currently do. We should long to have a better understanding of who we are as children of God so that we can live in all of the things that the Bible says. When you look at what the Bible says about hope and peace and joy and love and so many other things, those aren't like pie in the sky. Wouldn't it be great if you lived in hope? Wouldn't it be great if you had joy? Wouldn't it be great if you had peace? Those are all meant to be the real experience of our lives. We are meant to live with a sense of anticipation over what God is going to do in keeping His promises. We are meant to live with the joy of the Lord as our strength. We are meant to live with a peace that passes all understanding. That, that is who we're meant to be. But we'll never have those things until we know our God well. And we know who we are as His children. That's what Paul prays for the Ephesians. That's what Paul prays for us. There are four requests that we should pray in this passage so that we can better know God and better know our identity as children of God. First is pray to know God's Word. Clearly, Paul's first prayer, verse 17 and the first of 18, is that they would know God better. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of understanding would be enlightened. Our desire in ourselves, it ought to be to know God better. There should be in all of us as children of God a a longing, a yearning that causes us to cry out, oh, oh God, I must know You. I must know You better. I must know You more fully. The desire to know God is one that really cannot ever be fully satisfied because there is always more about God to know. Our finite minds cannot contain all that there is to know about God. So no matter how much we know today, there is more to know tomorrow. And so the constant cry of our hearts should be to know God better. And hopefully we would all say that is my desire. I want to know God better. But how do we do this? How do we grow in our knowledge of who God is and what God is like? Do we pray and then do nothing and, and poof, God just sort of pops the knowledge into our heads? No, not at all. If we want to know God, who He is and what He's like and what He's done, what He's promised to do, there is one way to do it, one primary way to do it, and that is we must study His Word. God's Word is God's revelation of Himself. It details His character. It details His morality. It details His power. It details who He is, what He has done, and what He is like. We will never know God if we do not know His Word. However, our study of the Word must be empowered by the Spirit of God. Paul's prayer is that as they grow, that the Holy Spirit would be to them the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God so the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. We need the Spirit of God to reveal truth to us from the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom regarding the truth from the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God to enlighten our eyes as we study the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God to make us know who we are as the children of God. And since we need the Spirit of God to open the Word up to us, then we should pray for this help 
every time we open up God's Word. But we should pray confidently because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But Paul writes, as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them to us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. But no one naturally knows who God is, what God's like, or what God has planned for those who have loved Him. The only way anyone can ever know who God is or what God's like or what God has planned is if the Holy Spirit reveals them to us. Scripture says there that the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, in order to reveal them to us. And I like his wording that just as no man um, knows the heart of man, no man knows us, no one really knows what you're thinking but you. The only way they can ever know what you're thinking is if you tell them. It's the same way with the the things of God. Nobody can just naturally discern them. No one can just naturally understand them. The only way anyone can ever know is if the spirit of wisdom and revelation is given to them in the knowledge of God. It takes the spirit of God for us to understand the mind of God and the word of God. So do you regularly pray for the Holy Spirit to open the word when you study it? I mean, we live in a day where there is an awful lot about the Bible we can read. There are good books in every bookstore. There are good devotions that are free in your electronic Bibles. Commentaries abound. There are scholars that write books and do stuff on YouTube and podcasts. I mean, we have the ability to have at our fingertips access to more knowledge about God's Word than any generation before us. But all of the commentaries and all of the devotions and all of the podcasts in the world will not help if the Holy Spirit does not reveal these things to us. The Holy Spirit does not make us to know how this applies to us. The Holy Spirit does not show that this is indeed for us, that this speaks to us, that this deals with our situation. Then we will forever miss out on knowing who God is and what God is like. Our natural reading comprehension skills are not enough to study the Word and come up with all that there is about who God is and what God is like. If we want to know God better, and we should, then we must be in the Word. And as we study the Word of God, we need the Spirit of God to reveal us, reveal to us the truth from Scripture. And the better The better we know God from Scripture, the better we'll know who we are as His children. So we pray for revelation from the Holy Spirit. So pray to know God's Word. Pray to know God's hope. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. We'll talk more about the calling of God when we get to Ephesians 4 in a few months. But today our focus is on the hope that comes from this calling. Hope is definitely something that is needed in our day. It is something that the unbelieving world needs. It's something that we as believers need. And yet what we see is that hope is a natural part 
of our calling. When God calls us, he calls us to hope. Hope isn't as much something that we as believers need as much as it is something that we need to understand. A biblical hope is a well-grounded, well-founded assurance that God will do what he has said he will do. Hope carries with it the idea of anticipation or expectation. We, we anticipate God keeping His Word and doing what He said He would do. We expect that God will do what He has said He will do. Now, to say we expect from God, that sort of sounds presumptuous. At least it does to me. And if I'm expecting God to do something just because I think He ought to, that is presumptuous. And probably that's not going to be what happens. But if I look and the Bible says this is what God does, this is who God is, this is what God is like, and I expect that God will do what He says He will do, that God will be who He says He will be, that is not presumption. That is simply hope. I am expecting that God is able to keep His Word. I am expecting that God will keep His Word. There's a lot that would go in to the hope that we have in Christ. But the focus in verse 18 it does seem to point to our hope for the future. right? And there's an awful lot that would go into our hope for the future, but there are two aspects of it that I think really are significant for us today. The first is that I will see Jesus. I think this is the greatest aspect of the hope that God has given us in Christ. Is that in this life, we know Jesus imperfectly through faith and the revelation of Scripture, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We truly know Him. We truly have a relationship with Christ here and now, but that relationship is somewhat limited because it is by faith, it is imperfect, it is through the revelation of Scripture. However, there is coming a day where faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus as He is. We will see Him in all of His glory. And on that day, we will begin to know Him more fully than we could ever comprehend. John gives us this hope. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when, we sh- when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. To me, I, I love that verse. I mean, just think about it for a second. Seeing Jesus as He is. Often when we visualize seeing Jesus as He is, we see Him as the, the Good Shepherd. Or we see Him in some of these meek, mild, and carpenter ways that we see in the Gospels. And yet that's not the way Jesus will be. When we see Him. When we see Him as He is, we will see Him in all of His glory. right? And that will be an amazing, fantastic thing. Uh, imagine how great the glory of Jesus is. That when the Apostle John, the one that is called the beloved disciple, when he saw Jesus in Revelation in a measure of His glory, he didn't say, Hey bro, what's up? Good to see you, pal. Instead, he fell down as dead before him because the glory of Jesus was so unbelievable. I do not think we can fully comprehend how great Jesus is, how amazing his glory will be. And the reason that in part this matters is that when we see Jesus, we will know that our lives were worth it all, that all that we did and all that we said, it It did matter, right? And that leads us to the second part. 
I will not have wasted my life. When we see Jesus in all of His glory, we will know that our lives lived for Him were not wasted. Years ago, I heard a song. I tried to find it this week, but I couldn't find it. It was called, We Were Right. And the song was about the last moments of an old preacher's life. And it was the dad of the guy who wrote and sang the song. And the song said that the old preacher had preached for many years about God's saving grace. But now the preacher was, he was old and he was bedridden and he was dying. And as he laid there dying, he wondered if he had been wrong. He wondered if he had wasted his life as a preacher of the gospel. And after thinking about it for a bit, he called his family together and he told them that he was right. That Jesus was worthy and that his grace was sufficient. According to the uh, the guy who wrote the song, those were virtually the last words of their dad before he passed away. Part of our hope as disciples of Jesus is knowing that our lives lived for Him are not wasted. Revelation, it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Those who die in Christ are blessed by Christ for all of their deeds done in the name of Christ. Follow them. And that is awesome to behold, awesome to consider. Everything we do for Jesus, it goes into eternity with us. And so, because of that, we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing we do in the name of Jesus is ever a waste. This is true. Whether any earthly person sees it or not. Because Jesus saw it. This is true. Whether there's any earthly fruit from it or not. It carried over into eternity. Jesus sees. Jesus cares. And Jesus will reward us for all that we do in His name. And as disciples of Jesus, we can live with an absolute hope. An absolute confidence. An absolute expectation that our lives if lived for Jesus, have not been wasted. This is a part of the glorious hope that God has given to us. Part of the hope that is our calling. More could be said about our hope. We could talk about a glad reunion day. We could talk about our bodies being transformed. We could talk about any number of other things. But in the end... We would never really cover it all. Because the Apostle Paul says that the hope that we have in Christ, it is so great that the sufferings of this life cannot compare to the glory of the life to come. Can you imagine how great our hope is if the sufferings of this life Just do not compare. I mean, the the picture is that when we get to heaven, when we see Jesus in all of His glory, we're not going to look back at this life and all the things that went wrong and be like, well, what about this and that was bad and all of this. We're going to get there. We're going to see Him in all of His glory. and We're going to go, woo, glory. This is wonderful. 
This is amazing. And if somebody were to bring up all the stuff of the past that happened, all the bad things on earth, we would say it doesn't matter. It doesn't compare. Look at this. Look at Jesus. Look at where I'm at. Look at what we have. Who cares about all of that other stuff? People need hope today. They need the hope that comes from God. They need the hope that is a part of the natural calling. As children of God. And what we often do, what I often do, I won't project onto you, what I often do is I pray for God to give me hope. I want to live in expectation. I want to live in anticipation. I want to live that way. But what I don't need is for God to give me hope. What I need is for God to help me to understand the hope that is already mine. And that's what you need as well. We should pray passionately for God to help us to know the hope that is a part of our calling as His children. Not just know it in our heads. For nothing I said this morning was surprised to anyone in here. But know it by experience. To know this hope in a way that it influences how we live, how we pray, how we act from day to day. The better we know God, the better we'll know our identity as children of God and the hope that is a part of God's calling. So pray to know God's hope. Pray to know God's word. Pray to know God's hope. Pray to know God's inheritance. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now, this part is pretty interesting. Paul prays for them to know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. And what often happens at this point is people begin to talk about our riches as our inheritance of being saints. But that's not what Paul says. Notice. I want you to know what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Paul is talking about the riches of God's inheritance in us, His saints. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought of yourself, one, as a saint, and two, as a part of a glorious inheritance that God receives? Think about that. I mean, do you ever think about yourself in that way as a part of when God inherits all things, when the, when the full completion of time comes, what God receives that He is longing for? It's us. I mean, have you ever thought of yourself as a part of God's inheritance on the earth? I think that's an amazing thing to think of that. Now, if we're not careful, we do apply this Inappropriately, We will apply this solely on an individual level. That I, Stacy Ross, am the riches of God's inheritance as a saint. And while that is partially true, it is also incomplete. See, it is not just me as an individual that am the riches of His glorious inheritance. It is us as a church that are the riches of His glorious inheritance. Far too often we take something like this and we apply it only in an individual way. Me, but not we. When in reality, many if not most times, truths like this are not just me, but they are intended to be 
we. In this passage, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is not just you and I as individuals. It is you and I as a part of his church. Let me show you how I can say that about this passage. What would you do, Scott? Did you see it flash? No, it's the one back there. Never mind. Still something Scott's doing, I'm sure. Uh, first, first, this book is written to a church. It's written to the Ephesian church, not the Ephesian individuals. Right? Isn't that the truth? And, and in fact, if we were to look at the majority of the New Testament letters, how many of them are written to individual people? Well, there's what? Titus, Timothy, Timothy, Philemon. Right? Now, Titus and the two Timothys, while they're written to individual people, guess what those two, those, three, those two individual people are? They're pastors of churches, and it's telling them how to, how to pastor and live as a church. Philemon is like the only New Testament letter that's truly written to an individual. It's not written to the individuals of Galatia, but to the churches of Galatia. The letters of the New Testament were not written on how to be a rugged individualist who has you and Jesus and no one else. They were written and teaching us how to live as a church. How to have unity as a church. How to care for one another as a church. They were written to the church. The church is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Secondly, we see Paul emphasize the church all throughout this letter. Look at, at chapter 1, verse 10. We're going to go through all of Ephesians this morning. That in the Ephesians 1 and 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, what is the, the one that all are gathered together into? It is the church. Now look at Ephesians 1 and 22. And hath put all things under His feet and gave Him Jesus to be head over all things to the church. Jesus has been made head over the church. Not, not head over a bunch of individuals. Head over the church. Verse 23. Which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. So the church is His body. Not individuals are His body. The church is His body. And not individuals are the fullness of Christ, but the church is the fullness of Christ. Now look at chapter 2, verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles of the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands. That at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and the strangers from the covenants and the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man. So making peace that he might Reconcile both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity. Now notice the emphasis. Verse 14. He is our peace who hath made both one. What, what's the one? The church. 
having abolished the enmity in our flesh, to make of himself of twain one new man. What is the one new man? It is the church. That he might reconcile both to God in one body. What is the one body? It is the church. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation He hath made known unto me the mysteries, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto His holy it revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Jews and Gentiles brought together by Jesus into the same body. What body? The church. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore the prisoner... Of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering and forbearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, is, and you are called to one hope of your calling. We are to walk worthy of our calling by striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace. Unity with who? With the church. Bond of peace with who? With the church. We are to do this because we are one body. What body? The church. Look at verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captives and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first in the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same that ascended up far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some teachers or some pastors and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. They all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man, the measure, the stature of the fullness of God. Who were gifts given to? The church. For what purpose? To edify the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? The church. How long does this go on? Until we come to unity as what? As the church. Look at chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved what? The church. And gave Himself for it. Look at verse 26. Why did he do this? That he might sanctify and cleanse it. It what? The church. With the washing of water by the word that he might present it. What? It. The church. To himself. A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any other such thing. But that it. The church. Should be holy. And without blame. Look at verse 5 and 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. The husband and the wife relationship is a picture of Christ and the church. If we go outside of Ephesians, we find that Jesus started the church. And that He used His own blood to purchase the church. And that the church is the bride of Christ. So is the church important to Jesus? Yes! Does the church matter to Jesus? Yes. Is Jesus committed to the church? Yes. Does he see the church as his glorious inheritance? Yes. 
Therefore, should the church be important to us as individual saints? Yes. Should we be committed to the church? Yes. Should we see the church as glorious and in the inheritance of God in Christ? Yes. That is important in our day where so many people do not see a need for the church. You do not find me and Jesus have our own thing in the Bible. In the Bible you find people get saved and they join the church. And they were so committed to the church that when they left the church, the Apostle John said they left us because they were never really of us to begin with. The rugged, lone ranger, individualist Christian does not exist in Scripture. And from what we see in Scripture, we could say it does not exist in America either. Instead, there are people deceived to believing they're saved if they have no concern for the glorious church of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, a, a London newspaper offered a prize for the best essay on the subject, What's Wrong with the Church? Boy, there's no shortage of articles talking about that in our day. According to the article I read, the prize was won by a minister from Wales who gave this answer. What's wrong with the church is our failure to realize and wonder at the beauty, the mystery, and the glory, and the greatness of the church. One of my commentaries said, think of it. God owns all the heavens and the numberless worlds. But we, the church, are His treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. We ought to be delirious with this truth. We should pray until we see how glorious the church of Jesus Christ really is. Till we see it as God sees it. And that we rejoice in the wonder this isn't really a part of my sermon, but let me just take a rabbit trail for a second and say, we in America are horribly, unbelievably spoiled. All over the world right now, there are believers gathered in caves and in tunnels and in abandoned buildings Fearing someone is going to come in and kill them because they are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. They would love to have the freedom to gather several times a week in an air-conditioned and heated building with padded pews to get to study the Word for an hour or more. And yet they gather at threat and fear of their lives. And they gather week after week, knowing that at any moment someone could break in and kill them. But we, we have what they could not imagine. And if we wake up with a little bit of sleepiness, or we just decide we need a little bit extra break, we just can't be bothered to get up and to go. Oh, dear friend, if you think that is New Testament Christianity, oh, we are so deceived. 
we do not know our God very well if we do not see the glory of His church. Pray to know God's Word. Pray to know God's hope. Pray to know God's inheritance. And then pray to know God's power. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. In this passage, Paul uses four different words to describe God's power, and each has a slightly different nuance to it. First is the word power, which the Greek word used is where we get the words dynamite and dynamo. And he describes God's power there as being exceedingly great. And it carries with it the idea of being unlimited, cannot be measured. God's power is far beyond anything our, our finite minds can comprehend. He also describes it as working of His power. And the word working sort of carries with the idea of the energy needed to accomplish something. Not something like resisting temptation to live for Jesus, to share the gospel, to be holy, find and use our spiritual gifts, etc. He uses the word mighty describing His power. And it carries with it the idea of the ability or strength to do something beyond natural capabilities. And then again, he uses the word power, but it's a different word in the Greek. And it carries with it the idea of overcoming or maybe even conquering. And all of this, this exceeding great power is for us who believe. God's exceeding great power, that working mighty power has been made available to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Think about that. That that power, it is available to us as believers in Jesus Christ. And to me that's important that it's available because we're always, I mean, again, maybe it's just me. I am always asking for more power. Power to witness. Power to resist temptations. Power to live faithfully. Power to love people. Power to make a difference. But according to Scripture, I don't need more power. And according to Scripture, you don't need more power. We need to know and we need to believe that we already have exceedingly great power working in us. According to God's mighty power. We have all the power that we will ever need. We just need to know and believe that this power is available to us. And live anticipating, expecting this power to flow through us for the glory of God. Now, to illustrate the greatness of God's power, Paul uses three illustrations to show how God has demonstrated His power. He demonstrated His power in verse 20 when He raised Jesus from the dead. Think about that. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, it is a power that is exceedingly great, working in His mighty power toward us. That power, power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's in us. That's already at work for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above 
all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and have put all things under His feet. Jesus has all power and all authority, He says, after His resurrection. All things are under Him. He is Lord over all. And the power that raised Jesus to that place that gave Him that power, that power is at work in us. Believers, it is a power greater than any principality and power, dominion and might that is named. This is every evil spiritual power in the world is under Jesus' feet. And the power that put them under his feet is at work in us. And has made him the head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. God's power is seen in Jesus being the head over the church that all things are about Him. So the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that set Jesus over all things, the power that made Jesus head over the church, is the same power at work in us, and through us, and for us already. Let me show you one verse to prove this. Turn to Ephesians 3.20. Familiar verse, but I think we often stop too soon. Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Woo, that's glorious right there, right? God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I can think and I can imagine some big things that God can do. And yet according to Scripture, the biggest thing I can imagine for God to do is nothing. Nothing. Because of His great power. But notice what the verse goes on to say. According to the power of That worketh where? In us. That exceeding great power is not something we need God to give us. It's already in us. We just need to understand it, to believe it, and to live as though it's true. Do you believe that the exceeding greatness of God's power is at work in you As a believer, you should. All the power that we need to do anything and everything that God wants to be done, it's already within us. We don't need more power before we share the gospel. We don't need more strength before we live a holy life. We don't need more before we begin to find and use our spiritual gifts. We have all that we will ever need within us. What we need is to believe it's true. What we need is to live as though it's true. To put ourselves into positions, really, where God has to come through, where His power is needed to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Everything we've talked about this morning is already ours because of our connection to God through Jesus. Not only are these things ours, we are meant to know them. The word for know that's used, it isn't merely a head knowledge. It is, it does carry with the idea of experience. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should have a a deep experiential knowledge. The power of God's word to change us. God's hope, the glory of God's inheritance and of God's power. If we do not have a deep experiential knowledge of these things, 
We need to pray not for God to give them to us. They're ours already. But for God to, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God to enlighten our eyes that we would see and understand and believe, believe, believe these things are ours. Now, I have to point out before we close that knowing all of these things begins with knowing God. We cannot have a deep experiential knowledge of these things without knowing God. Sadly, many people today, they want God's hope without God. They want God's power without God. The only way to receive what God has It is to know God. The only way to know God is to come to Him through faith in Jesus. Everything, everything rises and falls on Jesus. To know God through faith in Jesus, you must turn to Jesus. Scripture says that two cannot walk together unless they're agreed. Jesus does not offer to come alongside us as we walk in sin. He says, come and follow me and leads us away from sin. Make no mistake, there will never be a time when Jesus is walking the way of our sin. We have to choose this day who we'll serve. We have to believe. Now, believe isn't just a general way. It's not enough to believe that there's a God out there somewhere. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was real. What you must believe is very specific. It is to believe that Jesus' death on the cross, well, that it did really happen, but that it was for you. That Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That your hope, your righteousness, your salvation, that, that if you're welcomed into heaven, it will be only because of Jesus. Not your good works, Not your good deeds, not your ethnicity, not your family lineage, not because you went to church, not because you were baptized, but because you believed in Jesus. Now that requires you to let go of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And that's hard for us to do as Americans. We want to turn ourselves around. We want to lift ourselves up from our bootstraps. But you can't do that and be saved. You have to let go of your sense of self-righteousness. You have to let go of your sense of self-sufficiency. And you have to grab the cross and say, this and this alone is the reason that I'll be right with God. And you must call on Jesus to save you. And all of these, all of these are your choice. I mean, that's the thing. Today you can know All this truth. But if you don't choose to turn to Jesus, if you don't choose to rest your hope in Jesus, if you don't choose to call on Jesus, you are no better off spiritually than you were when you came in. You must make a choice. And you will. You will make a choice. You will choose to receive Jesus. Or you will choose to reject Jesus. Nobody gets to be Switzerland. We don't get to be neutral. We always choose one or the other.
Let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes.